Could you all turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12? We're looking at verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Good morning. Um, my name is Jeremy. In case you don't know me, um, we normally have uh, we normally been going through a series in the book of Philippians, but the Haslam's are all away on a Haslam weekend away together. Um, so we're kind of continuing our um, our series, well not our series, continuing a second week of kind of ad hoc talks. Um, so why don't you join me in prayer for a moment? Lord Jesus, you are worthy. You're so worthy, Lord, of us being here this morning, us spending time uh, together worshipping you, meeting you in your word, Lord Jesus. As we meet with you in your word this morning, Lord, would you speak to us? Lord, would our hearts grow in worship of you, Lord Jesus? With this talk, um, as we unpack your word, would it give glory to you, Lord Jesus? Would our hearts be changed and would you, would you continue us in, in, in changing and transforming us into your likeness, Lord Jesus? Amen. Amen. Good morning. Um, so I wonder if I, I want to start this morning with a question. What would you describe as the essence of the Christian life? What would you describe as the essence of the Christian life? I think some of you would say that the essence of the Christian life is to do certain things, to read your Bible, to pray, to go to church. And those are indeed part of the Christian life. Some of you would say um, to be a Christian means to believe certain things, to believe that Jesus is God, to believe that he died for our sins, to believe that he was resurrected. I say absolutely, those are an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. But I would say at the very essence of the Christian life, is a surrendering of your life, a willingness to turn your life over in worshipful obedience to God. To say, God, I worship you, you're almighty, you're the creator, I'm the creation, I want to serve you and follow you for the whole of my life. And that's what we see in this passage that we're looking at today. So I just want to draw that out for you guys in a few ways. Firstly, um, Paul says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I wonder what you, what you, what's in your mind's eye when you hear the words living sacrifice. For me, I think of the Old Testament uh, system, the sacrificial system, where um, the, the priests would bring and put a kind of sacrificial lamb or uh, a calf, a heifer, on the altar as, a, as an act of worship. Remember, this is a, an agrarian culture, so the, the idea that 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 heifer, that represented a big part of their livelihood. So they're, they're, they're putting that on the altar as an act of worship. But this time Paul, in, in Romans, is saying to us, actually put your whole life on the altar. Your whole life is a living sacrifice, an act of worship. Surrender your life to God. Paul goes on to call um, the people to live a life holy and acceptable to God. What does that mean? That means a life where your character, your actions are conformed to God's purposes, God's uh, rule and reign in your life. That you conform in a manner of obedience, both in, in what you do and in how you live. Uh, this is kind of, this section, um, 
This verse one, verse one and two is kind of like a preface to actually what, what continues on in the book of Romans, kind of chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, um, where he unpacks what it looks like to live this holy and acceptable life to God. Um, I'll just read out a few verses that kind of summarize that. Let love be genuine. This is uh, Romans chapter 12, verse nine. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So you get this picture of of, of, um, rooting your life in God's commands and living a life which is holy and acceptable to him. Third point, we're doing this out of worship. Paul goes on to say, this is your spiritual worship. So we're conforming our lives to God's pattern and rule and reign. We're living for him and living a holy and acceptable life because we worship him, because he's worthy of our worship. Finally, this life is going to look distinctive. It's going to look distinctive to the world around you. It says, do not conform to, to this world. It's going to look different to your, to your life previously. It says, be transformed. So you're being, being changed from a life without God to a life with God, ruling and reigning in your life. So we hear this, hear this distinctive life, hear this call to a distinctive life, a life of holiness, a life of worship, a life of obedience to God. And as many of us hear, though, that call, I think many of us hear it and get excited by it, but we also, our heart sinks. Because we hear the, the call to a holy and distinctive life, and we know our life doesn't match up to that. There'll be some who, who hear that and think, well, actually, I'm no different to the world around me. He says, do not be conformed. And actually, I spend my whole life trying to conform, trying to fit in with everyone else around me. So I don't, I don't relate to this at all. There'll be some of us who, who say, yeah, I want to live a holy and acceptable life. But actually, I just constantly fail. I constantly like, don't live up to the, my desires to live this holy and acceptable calling. Um, I remember at work a few years ago, it was about 7 p.m., and I just had another argument with my boss that day and hadn't reflected the love of Christ in my workplace. And I just remember like, putting my head in my hands and just saying, oh, just another day, like, just feeling that strong sense of despair of kind of, am I ever going to get this right? Am I ever going to be able to do this? Um, some of us, in fact, feel that set despair so much we kind of feel imprisoned and trapped in our sin. There are these patterns of sin that we kind of just get um, in, in, imprisoned in, almost. We get pulled into, and we think, there's no way out of this. I can't live a different way. Maybe some of you might not directly relate so much on the outside to this, but you say, actually, on, my, on the outside of my life, yeah, I look like I'm, I'm fairly living a, living a life um, worthy of the calling that God's called me to. But actually, inside... I know that I'm doing that for the wrong reasons. I know that I'm doing it because I want people to think well of me. I want people to think I'm a good Christian. And so actually I know that this doesn't, uh, that I don't really reflect this in my heart. So actually as we read this passage, as we hear this calling, I think the, the bit that really resonates with many of us is this desire to be transformed. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Actually, I want to, to speak directly into that despair, that kind of sense of, oh, I can't, this isn't me. I'm not living the holy and acceptable life. I want to say, actually, there is the true living hope of transformation in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to unpack and, and see the hope of transformation that exists in the New Testament. And we're also going to unpack exactly what that looks like, both in terms of the renewal of the mind and the change of the heart. 
Just for a moment, though, I think this isn't something that just applies to Christians. I think as we look around our city today, actually many people are seeking a form of transformation. We think about patterns like mindfulness, uh, the self-help movement, the self-improvement literature that's just so popular in our city. Actually, there's a recognition among almost every Londoner that we're not living quite the, we're not, uh, the people we'd quite want to be. Our lives don't quite match up to the, the direction of travel that we want. We're not, and we're always searching for exactly what's the thing that will change me. So actually, we don't just hear this cry for transformation across our church. We hear this cry for transformation across our city. So let's, uh, let's look in. Let's dig into this, this hope of transformation. What does it mean when Paul says, be transformed? And how can we be confident in God's transforming power for our lives? The first thing is that God calls us a new creation in Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ, if you're a Christian, then you are a new creation in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The best picture, I think, for this is baptism. And baptism is an outward picture of the inward reality that's already taken place. But in baptism, this is kind of baptism by immersion. We're going to be doing some baptisms um, soon, so you'll get to see it if you haven't seen it before. Um, In baptism, someone uh, is lowered into the water, and that lowering into the water is a symbol of their death, their death to their old life. As they rise up, that's a symbol of the new birth, the fact that they have been born again. Do you remember in in, um, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in the, uh, early on in the book, book of John, and he says you must be born again. So it's a sign that you're being born again, that you're a new creation. With this new identity comes a new nature. The power of sin has been destroyed in our lives. We've been set free from sin. Um, in Romans chapter 6, Paul puts it that we are no longer enslaved to sin. So now that we've become a new creation... We're no longer identified by our sins. We're no longer identified by our achievements or what, all, the other, all the other things that we'd seek to identify ourselves by. Actually, we've become a new creation. And with that uh, regeneration, with that new creation identity, actually comes a new nature, a new power over sin in our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that we will never be uh, this side of heaven, that we will ever be totally sin-free. This, the flesh still exists in us. And we still have temptation to sin. We'll still sin. But our destination is heaven. One day when we're going to be worshipping God as heaven comes down on earth, worshipping God totally sinless, as as, as the perfect, beautiful, spotless bride, worshipping God. That's our destination. And in the meantime, after salvation, we're being transformed into the likeness. We're slowly being sanctified, being transformed into the perfect sinless bride that will meet Jesus when he comes down to judge the living and the dead. And this is an expectation. I want you guys to hear the expectation in the New Testament that we will be progressively transformed, changed by God in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh, the sin that so easily entangles, and become more like Christ. Um, I think it's really well put in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I think one of the best pictures um, that I could think of that kind of describes this is a bit like DNA. 
So in my family, there's a bit of a genetic predisposition to baldness. Uh, probably you wouldn't know it looking at me. Um, but my dad's bald, my uncle's bald, my uncle was bald, my cousin's bald, my grandfather was bald. You know, every male in um, the Moses line uh, is bald. And, um, and so you, I guess I would look at it a bit like that, the genetic predisposition to baldness. You can't see it in me now. It isn't the, the full reality. There's still a, a good chunky head of hair. But... But actually, you know that that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to become. And so you're going to see glimpses of it. <laughs> and it depends how long you stay in this church, you might see more and more of those glimpses. Um, but that's the, that's the progressive transformation. We know the direction of travel. We may not be, it may not be the reality today, but that is the promise of God that he is working a transformation in us. This is why when we look at the, um, the book of Romans, this verse here when it says be transformed, this be transformed is not be transformed from something completely different to something else. It's actually be transformed, become who you truly are. The word for transformed in this, in this passage is metamorpho, where we get the English word metamorphosis. And, um, and you remember the whole idea of metamorphosis, the caterpillar is becoming the butterfly. That actually it's in, inside that caterpillar is a, a destiny to become the butterfly. And actually, the word metamorpho literally means to change form in keeping with the inner reality. To change form in keeping with the inner reality. So actually, it's the same word that's used when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Olives. And so what's happening on the, the transfiguration of the Mount of Olives? Jesus has, up until now, been walking around looking like a normal man. He doesn't look like he's, you know, they just see, the, they just see a normal man. But then on the transfiguration, on the Mount of Olives, they see the Son of God revealed in his glory, just for a moment. They see the true Jesus, the transfiguration, that he's transformed before their eyes into the trueness of who he actually is. And that's the same, the same command, and I would say, dare say, the same promise in the New Testament, that actually you're transformed to become who you already are, in the new nature, the new identity, the new creation that you already are in Christ. That actually that's God's transforming work, helping you to become the person you already are. Now, some of us have already counted ourselves out of this. We look at our lives and we say, my life's really messy. There's no way this sanctification's going on in my life. But you must grasp with the eyes of faith the, the reality, the promise, that it's not right now that you're the perfect finished article, but the promise that you are going on this sanctification journey, that God will change you. That's the promise for us, that God will, if, without, if we cooperate, if we participate in that transformation journey, that God will do his sanctification work. I think it's really important that we understand that God is the one doing the sanctification here, that God is the primary agent of changing us. Um, I think about Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, when, he said, when Paul tells the Galatians, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the sinful nature. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the sinful nature. Many of us hear that and hear that as a command. We hear that and we think, okay, walk by the Spirit, okay, I will not gratify the sinful nature. I will not gratify the sinful nature. And, and, and whatever your sin or temptation is, you're kind of, you're kind of saying that to yourself as, you, as you're uh, faced with that temptation. But actually, I believe this is a promise. It actually says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the sinful nature. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome the sinful temptations that we all face. This is a promise of the power of the Holy Spirit to change us. And actually, I think this is such good news because it means the transformation doesn't depend on us. This is liberating when we know how, how um, fallible we are, how broken we are, how we, kind of, if we're in charge of the change, then I'm not sure it's gonna happen. But we know that God is the one doing the change in us. 
This gives us hope again, particularly for those of you who feel trapped in sin. Those who feel that my life is so far from the reality that Paul's calling us to here. Actually, this is giving you hope because it's saying you are able to walk out of this sin. The best lie of the enemy is you can't overcome sin in your life, that you're trapped in that sin. I remember feeling this um, acutely when I was bound up in in sin, uh, in the area of pornography and and things like that. And I just remember praying. um, And as I was praying, I had a picture from God. I felt God was speaking to me, a picture of me in prison. I thought, yeah, that acutely describes how I feel right now. I'm in prison. I'm, I'm totally trapped by this sin. But I felt God also show me that I could walk out of that prison at any point. That it was a prison that I had willingly walked into, so to speak. It's not where I belonged. I'm a, I'm a free child of God living uh, as a new creation. That's who I am, a new creation. But I walked back into sin, and actually I can walk out of it at any point. So I feel like I want to tell you that, that if you all feel bound up in the handcuffs of sin... Actually, you can take them off in the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, I think it's really important to understand that there is a part to play for us as well. That we have a part to play in faith, cooperating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, um, Paul encourages the church to be filled with the Spirit. That's not a, a one-time encouragement. That's a kind of ongoing expectation that in your Christian walk, you're going to ask God to fill you with his Spirit to ask God to appropriate the power of God in your life and to say, God, I need your help to break out of this sin. So I want to encourage you to trust his spirit for, your work, for his work in your life and cooperate by faith. To say, God, I need you to change me. God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would I surrender this, this to you again? I want to be free in your power. So, so there's a danger um, that when we hear all of this, when we hear this, this command and encouragement to be to be free from sin, that we, that we end up going home and trying harder. That we go home and say, right, I'm going to really defeat sin now. I'm going to break this. And actually, we find ourselves in the same patterns of sin. Actually, trying harder isn't enough. I've got a quote from Tim Chester here, who's written a really good book called You Can Change, which you may find really helpful if this is an area of your life that you want to focus on. But he said, trying to change your behavior alone doesn't work because the lies that create the behavior are still there. The lies that create the behavior are still there. I want to say transformation in the Christian life, this sanctification work, involves a transformation of the heart and the mind. In Romans, the verses we're looking at, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So God's work in our lives is changing how we think and and our heart. Particularly, I want to focus on for a moment, how God changes our faulty thinking. Actually, sin, at the root of sin in our lives, is faulty thinking, is believing lies, either about God, believing that God isn't good, or believing that sin is really attractive and will and we'll meet our needs, will meet our, our deepest satisfactions. So think back all the way to the fall, Adam and Eve, what was at the centre of their sin? The serpent lied to them, and they believed that lie. They said, yeah, actually, God didn't say that. So they were convinced by Satan that, he was, that God was lying to them about eating from the tree of good and evil and, and that they wouldn't die. So they didn't trust God and they believed a lie. So the essence of sin, right from the fall onwards all the way to now, is believing lies about God and about sin. I think of my friend Ben. I've changed his name. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think about my friend Ben. Uh, I must not slip up here now and say his real name. Um, and Ben became a Christian in prison. 
when he became a Christian in prison, his life was really transformed. He uh, is really a, a joy to behold. Um, a guy who'd been really aggressive before, actually was able to become really loving. He restored his relationship with his dad. God worked really um, massively in his life uh, after he became a Christian in prison. But then when he, he came out of prison, I, I, he, Ben and I were part of the same church. And um, over time, he developed one particular sin, which was really corrosive and destructive for his life, and that was gambling. He, was re- he, he just found himself going to betting shops he was, um, and, and just, just losing loads of money and getting into debt, and it just was, had, had horrendous consequences for, for him and the people around him. And as, I, as we looked at it, you know, we first started by just praying, just by saying, okay, let's, let's pray to defeat this sin in your life. Let's, let's ask God to break, break free. But actually, it took, it took that, but it took more than that as well, because we also started to look in and understand what are the lies that are going on beneath the surface here. And for Ben, the things that he was believing, he was believing that he needed money to be happy, that he needed to make himself something, that it was, he'd become a Christian, but actually now he needed to kind of fit in with all the middle-class people in church that he <laughs> was fellowshipping with. And so he, he started to believe the lie that he needed money to be happy with. Happy. He also, I think, believed the lie that he couldn't trust God for his provision. Actually, in the center of his sin there was that he couldn't trust God, that God would provide for him. Actually, I think you can do this with any, any sin in your life. You can start to say, well, what's the lie beneath the surface? What's the, the things that I'm believing that aren't true? So I think about... Um, Sorry, I'm going to spoil Has anyone read this Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers? Um, anyone reading it right now? Okay, um, Esther, you might want to block, block your ears out. <laughs> Depending on how far you are, it's a spoiler alert. Oh, it's a great book, by the way. Highly recommend it. Um, and uh, yeah, so f- there's, a, there's a woman in this book who um, is, a, is a prostitute. It's really um, tremendous uh, depiction. It's a really, really um, gritty depiction of that life. And... Um, and she gets married. There's a Christian guy who, who marries her despite her kind of best wishes. And um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm doing a terrible word to fiction the book. But she, becomes, she gets married and, and she, she's living married to this guy. And then someone else comes along, this, this guy's brother, and he, and he reminds her of the lie. He says, actually, you're a prostitute. You know, you're, you're living this beautiful Christian life now with this man who's your husband. Actually, you're still a prostitute. You're not that, you're not that, you're not his wife, you're a prostitute. And he brings her back through the power of that lie back into prostitution. And, and obviously she commits adultery and it's, it's terrible. And I, I won't go on, the story has a happy ending. But, um, <laughs> but what's really interesting is that she believes the lie about who she is. And because of that, because believing the lie about who she is, she goes back into that sin. And that's a really um, helpful picture, I think. Um, she hasn't understood grace and, she, and she's still hanging on to the old identity. So if you're trapped in sin, if you're even attracted to sin, we have to ask, what lies am I believing? In my own life right now, I'd say one of the lies, one of the sins I'm dealing with is overwork, trying to just not really resting, uh, believing that I'm kind of, well, I'll come on to the beliefs in a moment, but basically just not really resting and overworking. And as as I look at that sin, um, and I'm not really living in the patterns of Sabbath rest, I say, what's going on there? One, a belief that I'm, um, the world depends on me. I can't rest, that I need to be doing these things, otherwise the world's going to fall over. So that's one lie that I'm believing. Um, another lie, that other people's opinions of me matter more than what God thinks of me, that, how God sees me. So I, then I'm working too hard to kind of basically get other people's approval rather than just to um, accept God's, what God says about me. Maybe you're um, attracted to dating a non-Christian. I, uh, 
completely unrelated to uh, the, the article that Andrew shared yesterday, but just thinking, attracted to dating a non-Christian. Um, if, you're, if you find yourself in that place, then you have to say, well, what's going on in that? And, I, and obviously that's a, something that I know so many grapple with. Uh, but one is, maybe you're not believing that God's love is enough for you in the sense that you say, I must, I must experience the love of another human being. I must be in a relationship to be happy. That I can't, uh, that God won't prov- doesn't provide enough for my needs with my relationship with him and then the relational life that he's provided for me, that I can't trust God for that. And actually I must go outside of his plan for that, if that makes sense. Um, I'm not, maybe you're not sure that God will provide everything for your needs, that he won't meet every, every one of your needs. And that's what's driving that, that sin or... or um, that temptation. So I want to challenge you then to think, what are the lies that you're believing? Actually, as, as you understand the lies that you're believing, the next step is the truth of God. The truth of God is such a crucial weapon against these lies. So back to, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul gives that wonderful passage about the armor of God. And one of the armor of God is the, is the uh, fasten on the belt of truth. The truth is so important as a buttress against these lies. Jesus promises in John chapter 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's truth brings freedom. As we imbibe, as we immerse ourselves in his word, he, he brings freedom from the prevailing norms and lies that are operating in our mind. That's why as a church community, we put such an emphasis on God's word. That's why we preach it. That's why we study it on, on, uh, during the weeknights at Life Group. That's why we encourage a, a personal devotional life. That we have that ongoing work of God's word transforming our minds. And that's such an important part of our life together as a community. Now, there's a danger sometimes that we'll do this activity either to tick boxes, uh, I've read my Bible today, or as an act of intellectual self-improvement. Uh, maybe not wrong in itself to study the, the Bible, but, but not the central point. Um, sorry, forgive me, I'm not saying it's wrong to study the Bible. I'm, saying, <laughs> um, I'm merely arguing that, particularly in this area of biblical meditation, this idea of of allowing the word to change you, to form you. Not just, not, there's a, a real place for studying the word and really investing in what does it actually mean. But there's also a place for allowing the word to shape you, to form who you are and to change your mind. So this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about biblical meditation. Just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but you accept them as they are said to you, accept the word of scripture and ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all meditation is. So the position of a Christian is an open-handed one, saying, God, I'm, where I'm wrong, will you change me? Will you show me where I've gotten things wrong? Will you, will you renew my mind? Will you change how I see the world? Um, once we've identified our faulty thinking, and once we've identified this uh, God's truth, the next step is really simple. The act of renewing our mind, repenting of what we believe that's wrong, repenting of these lies, turning around from these lies, saying, actually, I don't believe that anymore, that's not true, and accepting God's truth in faith. This is such an important part. It's not just about reading the word, but it's a, it's a, a willingness to change in line to fit with the word of God. So um, I think about when I first became a Christian, there were a lot, about, a lot of the ways I saw myself, a lot of my identity was wrong. 
And I came to understand that, the way that my, the, I was faulty thinking. So as I went around my life, as I was walking around my life, I would kind of go, oh, that's how I think. Okay, no, that's not true. This is who I am in Christ. And then I would kind of carry on. And, then, and it's kind of this constant, like, no, that's not true. Actually, this is who I am in Christ. That kind of willingness to keep challenging what you're thinking and align it with the truth that you've come to know and believe in the word of God. Actually, when we do understand the truth about who we are, when we understand God's truth and we reject the lies, I think we experience a, a, a radical new freedom. One example of this is Jen, um, my wife in her life. Um, she is a nurse and she had a job in the NHS. And um, for the first year or so of her career, or maybe a bit less than that, um, she was very fearful of sharing her faith in the NHS. We've all um, heard about those horror stories of people getting fired. and She was worried about the consequences as she um, was thinking about that and praying about that and, and attending various conferences and teaching on the subject, um, she came to understand the lies that she was believing, um, that, that she came to realise that she wasn't trusting God with her future and that God's purposes were more important than the opinion of other people. So she recognised actually this fear that she was operating under beforehand actually was, was based on some mistruths, if that makes sense, that she had to correct her mind. And so when she understood, actually, and then she went about changing that, putting her trust in God and saying, God, you're, you have my future, you know what's, what's best for me, she found a new freedom to share her faith. Uh, naturally, as opportunities came up with patients and colleagues and whoever else, and that was that she experienced something of the freedom that Christ offers and promises in this area. So we've talked about um, the transformation of the mind, the renewing of the mind. Some of you might say, well, actually, I know all the right things. I believe the truth, but I still find myself not really being changed. I, still, it's, you know, I, can, I can say I'm a child of God, but I still find myself battling this, battling this sin. But I would say it's not just about what you know, but it's your heart direction as well. Um, in Luke chapter 6 verse uh, 43 to 45, I think Jesus gives us a really good picture of how our heart directs our steps. I just want to read that to you. For no good fruit, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of the e- his evil treasure, produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, what do we mean by heart? In the biblical sense, we mean your will, your, your desires, your affections. That's what we mean by heart here. So that, and we all know that actually what we desire, what, 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 we, what we're passionate about, what, what our will is for, is such a powerful determinant of how we live. So actually, just as we're asking God to renew our minds in our process of transformation, actually, we need God to transform our hearts as well, to transform what we desire, which is why a guy like John Piper, his ministry is kind of built on this premise, really, of the desiring God, that actually God is, there's such an importance of how our affections and our desires are orientated towards God. Actually, as I look at Romans 12, and I read this passage, I'm, I think it's impossible without a God-transformed desire. Who of us reading this passage in, in, in human terms, in, with human, uh, just with the human eyes, would hear this call to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, to be obedient to God in everything, and to, to follow him in everything, and to be absolutely obedient? In human terms, we hear that, that feels impossible. That feels incredible, the, what Jesus is calling us to do. 
And it's only possible by a transformation of the heart. What do I mean by that? If you're looking at your life trapped in sin, changing your heart is the key, it's such an important key to, to changing the way you behave. Actually, we need to ask God to change our will, our emotions, our desires, to love him, and as a result, let our behavior be changed. So what do we mean by how God changes the heart? How does God change our hearts? I think we have a key to that part, the the way that God changes our hearts, at the very beginning of the verses we're looking at. It says, by the mercies of God, or in the NIV, in view of God's mercy. Um, So actually, it's the mercy of God that transforms our hearts. So as as we understand the truth about God's mercy, his love for us, it transforms our heart. And so we desire to worship him. Our hearts become alive again with a worship of God. And as we worship God, we, ch- we desire to change the way we live. So it all flows from, a, from seeing and understanding the mercy of God. And we have a picture of God's mercy in this passage. We're called to li- be a living sacrifice. But actually, of course, the me- the, you can't fail to see the, the symbolism here. That we're called to be a living sacrifice to follow the ultimate one who was a living sacrifice for us, who ultimately died on the cross. We have a picture of the gospel right here in this passage. Of course, it's a picture of the ultimate sacrifice for us, Jesus Christ. As we consider laying our lives down, we can see this beautiful, loving sacrifice on our behalf. Our brother willing to die on our behalf. The cross which displays a God who is good, who can be trusted, who knows what we need and was willing to come down and die for us. It was an act of utter, reckless love. We can marvel at the forgiveness brought by Jesus on the cross, that we can now be forgiven and we can be back into relationship with God. We appreciate the willingness of Jesus to take the punishment for us that we deserve that ultimately would have left us cold outside of relationship with God, separate from him from eternity. We can recognize the ultimate reckless love from God, willingness, his willingness to reconnect us with him. We can see that picture in this passage. And as we see the cross, as we marvel at God's willingness to lay down his life for us on the cross, that will restore, that restores our joy. It restores our, our marvel and wonder at God. And as we do that, that will change the way we live. We can, as we see this, we, we, as we see the cross, it's the ultimate stamp, the ultimate stamp of approval that we know that we can trust God, that he's good for us. You know, so much of sin, as I mentioned before, is that, is that lack of belief that God is good. But on the cross, we have an ultimate picture that says, actually, no, God is good. He, he can be trusted because he was willing to lay down his life for us. So we have a task before us then to let our hearts see his goodness. This is, this is a crucial part of your Christian walk, to allow God to be changing your heart, to come face to face again with God's goodness on the cross or elsewhere. It's not just the cross. Um, and as we see his goodness, we'll be brought into change. Psalm 26, verse 3. We see this pattern, I think, throughout the Bible. Psalm 26, uh, the psalmist says this, For your steadfast love is ever before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So he's seen the steadfast love. It's ever before his eyes. And I walk in your faithfulness. Out of a recognition of who God is, he wants to follow him. Uh, Psalm 119 is the same. Verse 90 says, Your faithfulness endures for all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. And later on, verse 102, And I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. 
Your faithfulness endures for all generations. So I will not stand, I'm, I'm adding the so, but <laughs> I do not t- turn aside from your rules for, for you've taught me. And that's why as a community, we put such an emphasis on worship. That's why as a community, every week we celebrate communion because we want to remember God's goodness. We want to remember and enjoy each week God's goodness in a tangible way. As obviously, Jesus also commanded us to do it. But um, actually, this is our tangible recognition of God's goodness and, and how we can trust him. So then we've talked about God transforming our hearts and we've ca- talked about uh, God transforming our minds. But what's, what's our role? What's our response to this? And you couldn't read these verses, uh, 1 and 2, and not see our response. That actually, the, the way to, to start this change, so to speak, the way for this, this change to be precipitated in our lives, between letting our hearts be warmed by grace and our minds renewed by God's truth, our response, our action, is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The key to a transformed life is to lay your life down, to say to God, God, have your way with me. I surrender my life to you. What does this mean? What does it mean to surrender your life as a living sacrifice? Well, it's an act of worship. It's not an act of self-improvement. It's a response to grace. It's not self-justification. It's an utter giving of your life. It's not holding anything back. Saying, God, you have control says, my life is yours, a willingness to surrender everything to him. Actually, if you're, and I think you'll see, actually, sorry, that, that that's a natural response to grace. That that's, as we understand grace, as, we, as our hearts are warmed by this truth, that's the natural response to want to lay your whole life down for him. So if you're not a Christian here, I want you to understand that this is the es- essence of the Christian life. It means to follow Jesus, to turn your life over to him. He's calling you to turn everything over to him. It's only possible when you see who he is. So if you say, well, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready to turn my life over to him. I would say, go back and look and see him. Behold him. See him. Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. Read an account of Jesus' life. Come face to face with the person of Jesus. Say, can I trust you? Can I trust you to lay my life down and follow you with everything I have? That's such a central question for every, every person here who's not a Christian. But there may be some of you today who do want to respond in that way, who do are ready to lay your lives down to follow him. And um, we'll lead a time of response later on as we worship. But also, this is for Christians as well. I, can't, I think this is true. I couldn't find evidence of this yesterday, but someone told me uh, that the Benedictine monks pray the same kind of salvation prayer as we, pray, as we might invite a non-Christian to pray every day. Actually, the essence of the Christian life is on a daily basis being willing to lay down and surrender your life to God, to say, you have your way with me, your will. uh, We know that so often our wills, our our, our affections, they're so easily distracted by other things. And so actually, again, the call is for every Christian to make that same same, uh, turning around, repenting, and willing to say, God, I want you to have everything. I want you to have your way in my life. So I want to give you guys the opportunity to turn your life over to him again this morning. We'll have a time of prayer at the back as well. I'll introduce that in a moment. But just to finish, I want to pray for us. And I want to use this prayer. If you just flick on to the first slide. This is um, a, a Methodist prayer uh, that I be- may, have, may have come around by the, at the time of the Wesleys. But it's a, it's, a, it's a laying your life down, a willingness to surrender everything to him again. So I'm going to pray this in a moment. 
I'm gonna, and as I pray it, please join me in silence in your heart with that, if that's a prayer that you want to pray, if you want to surrender, turn things over to him. I also want to invite people, we're going to have some, uh, the band are going to come up, and, uh, and we're going to have communion. Again, a great time to, to respond to this truth, to recognise the gift of God in Christ on the cross. And uh, Thank you. so as we take communion, I want us to respond in that way as well, to remember the gift of God. And then as we, as we worship after that, then there'll be people at the back who are willing to pray for us. I think that some of this work around transforming our minds and our hearts is something that we do in community. Uh, we had a really precious time with someone recently where we were just going through some lies that they were believing. We were just going through that and we were just renouncing. They were just rejecting that, repenting of that in Jesus' name. And they were just inviting God's truth into their heart. We were praying for them. It was such a wonderful time. It was, I just want to encourage you guys to do this together in community. But we'll have some people at the back as we worship. I just want to encourage you guys to come back and join us in prayer. If there are certain things you want to hand over to God. If you want to surrender your life with someone else, if you're not a Christian and you'd like to do that, um, we'd love to invite you to do that. Equally, if you're a Christian and you say, actually, there are parts of my life that I'm not, I'm not giving to God, I'm not willing to surrender to him, again, we'd love to join you in praying, surrendering those things. Or if there's some of that work that God needs to do in heart or mind, then, again, we'd love to pray for you. So I'm going to pray this then. Can you guys turn it over at the, at the appropriate moment? Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank with me, rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Lord Jesus, you're good. You're the almighty King, Lord. We just turn over and surrender our lives to you again. Say you're our holy King. As we celebrate communion, as we take communion now, Lord Jesus, would we remember your goodness, your, your generosity, your sacrifice, your power, your majesty, Lord. We remember that we are debtors, Lord, for what you've done. We just want to receive that gift again in Christ. We want to turn our lives over to you and celebrate your goodness, Lord. We lay down all the things that so easily entangle, Lord Jesus. I ask that we would live a holy and acceptable life to you, Lord Jesus, by your power and the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. Would you fill us again, Lord, to be your servants in this world. You're so worthy.